Thank you, Sue. Um, that image is exactly um, of the mountain, I think, is, is uh, appropriate, not only for, uh, for us as, as people, but we live in Asheville, so obviously there are lots of mountains to see, and you, you go to the beach and you're like, ah, I like the beach, but I live in the mountains. Like, that's, that's really it. Like, I can visit the beach, but I like living in the mountains. And um, if you've ever heard that phrase, uh, mountaintop experience, have any of you heard that phrase? I mean, it's a pretty common phrase, mountaintop experience. It's that, it's that moment that you just, everything seemed right, you got it, and what is it we want from the mountaintop experience? We don't ever want it to end, really. That's, that's really what it is. Um, but living in Asheville, there are a lot of hikes that you can take that get you to that mountaintop. In fact, I see posts on social media all the time. Uh, it, you know, local Asheville people in search of local hike, less than an hour drive, kid-friendly, no mosquitoes, no snakes. And if there happens to be a gluten-free waffle and chicken shack at the top of that view, go ahead and start recommending your hikes. Like, that's really what we want. And so, like... The more, the more requests we make for the in search of hike, it typically ends up being like, we just want it to be low and slow and let us see everything we want. Like, that's what we want. That's the mountaintop experience. We want the views. We want to know, uh, we want to be able to see with clarity. We want to be able to see everything and just do that 360 view. I mean, that's, we love that about living in the mountains. But the phrase mountaintop experience is actually one that was coined based on the scripture. Like people started using this phrase because of the number of times in scripture God meets people, reveals himself to people on a mountaintop. And so this whole thing of, of being marked by God or having this experience that changes us, because here's the deal, you honestly cannot encounter the living God and walk away the same. You just can't. Like, if you encounter him and his presence, and it's really one of the things, and I'm kind of giving this away a little bit, but it's one of the reasons we want to push people to the word of God, because the number of times I have sat with people who have gone, you know, I've sat in church, I listened, I heard sermons, but it wasn't until I went here that I saw him. Like, we want those mountaintop experiences. Like, we want when Noah gets the covenant made with him on the mountain. We want when Moses gets to meet with the, the presence of the Lord on the mountain. We want when Abraham gets to meet with the Lord. We want when Elijah gets to meet with the Lord on the mountain. We want to be with Jesus when he's on the mountain. We want, we want, we want. But do you know the common thread of all those mountaintop experiences in Scripture? They all had to go back down the mountain. Do you get that? Do you know that they didn't get to live on the mountain? They didn't get to stay there. Like, but that's what we want, right? In a, especially in, in American Christianity, we want the mountaintop because we long for the experience. But the common denominator in Scripture of those that had mountaintop experiences with the Lord, none of them got to stay there. They all had to go back down into the valley. And for some of them, those valleys were very low. But if you can hear me say one thing this morning, it is that in those mountaintop encounters we have with the Lord, 
He does these things to mark us so that in our darkest days, in the valley, in the low places, we remember, oh right, he's good. He's more. He's greater. And the beautiful promise of scripture is that God doesn't send us to the valleys and remain on the mountaintop. The beautiful promise of scripture is that he's in the valley with us. And I think those mountaintop moments that we experience are to be the reminders that I'm with you. Like that God who met me on the mountain is the very same God who is powerful enough to walk me through the valley. The common denominator of mountaintop experiences in scripture is they all have to go back down the mountain. And I'm not suggesting that Sundays are the mountaintop experiences and then the rest of the week is heading back down the mountain. I, please hear me, because that is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that when God is gracious enough to let us know who he is, more of his kindness, more of his mercy, more of his power, more of his holiness. When he is gracious enough to reveal those things to us, whether it be in a gathering, whether it be with a small group of people, whether it be in time in scripture, which I hope this is where you anchor yourself, whether it be in those, those worship moments when you're in your car driving and singing a song and he meets you, I don't know. But when he does that, it is because he's fueling us for the journey ahead. And I know we're desperate to live on the mountaintops. It's why we form those monasteries on the mountains. It's why people go to the mountains. It's because they want to be alone and have their experience with God. Stay there. But if I know one thing about what Jesus came to do, it's that he came to shape us in our terribly normal days. I don't know what expectations you've walked with in this life that maybe you thought, if I get God in on my side, everything is going to be amazing. Friends, telling you, everything's going to be probably normal. Everything's going to be probably mundane. Everything's going to be monotonous. But where all that gets transformed is that we know the God of the mountaintop is the God who's with us in the valley. So when I go through my day to day, I'm not doing it by myself, but I am journeying with the one who changes everything. This is the power of the mountaintop experience we see in scripture. And this morning in Mark's gospel, we have a front row seat to a mountaintop experience. The first half of the book of Mark is, is He's really answering, who is Jesus? We're getting to see forgiveness and mercy and power and grace and healing and a kingdom coming that is more than we can even imagine. Jesus is, is revealing who he is. And Mark really focuses in on that, the first seven to eight chapters of his gospel. But now we've hit this turning point. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, we have this moment with... Um, with the father who, when Jesus is baptized, you remember, it's this picture and a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. 
So God the Father is revealing, this is who Jesus is. He's my son. Pay attention. This is what's up. He is the one. I've marked him. People heard an audible voice. And so the rest of the first several chapters of Mark is, is just evidence of this. God affirming these things. But in these chapters that we've been in these last several weeks, we are focusing in on what has Jesus come to do. And I think those are the two questions we really have to answer for a, for a generation of people who want to know why Jesus. We have to be able to explain to them who he is and what he came to do. Thankfully, Jesus gives us both of those answers. We don't have to come up with them on our own. We don't have to go, oh man, I'm, I'm really scrambling for words on how to tell people who Jesus is. I'm really scrambling for, to tell them what he came to do. He gives us the words. This is why it's so important to anchor. This is why it's so important. Like, can you explain to someone why Christianity is not the same as Islam? Can you explain to someone why Christianity is not the same as Buddhism? Can you explain to anyone why they're not the same? Sure, there are moral elements that we share, absolutely. But the why for the moral elements is very, very different. Can you, as a generation, explain to anyone why it's different? Well, you don't have to come up with words on your own. Jesus did it. That's why Christ's followers are persecuted around the world, even now. Not for explaining how Jesus is the same, but that he is different. And so as we continually sit, sit in Mark's gospel in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, we begin to see death and suffering as a constant of Jesus' message. Jesus is headed to the cross, and he is shaping the disciples' views and all of their thoughts of triumph and victory are, have been turned to tragedy. And it's part of the reason, you know, Peter pulled Jesus aside last week in, in, in the scripture. And he's like, Jesus, you got to stop with all this cross talk. You got to stop with all this death talk. We're really about this victory. The Messiah was promised to come and conquer and victory and win. And look at Rome and how powerful they are. There's no way suffering and death can happen. That would mean you're not the Messiah. No, this can't be true. We've given up three years of our lives to follow you around. You have got to stop all this death talk. Matthew, in Mark 8, 9, and 10, Jesus clearly repeats himself. The Messiah, the Messiah will be handed over, will be betrayed, will be resented, will be mocked, will be killed, and will raise from the dead. Jesus explains it crystal clear, and whether or not the disciples like it or not, Jesus says that there is no way to glory except through suffering. So we pick up in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. This is actually a continued conversation. Sometimes chapter breaks can present thought breaks where we're actually like, hey, this is a whole new day. And, and sometimes chapter breaks can be a good thing because obviously we can all read together. But sometimes chapter breaks like, put a, like a dent in the way you think. This is continuing in a conversation going on. And so verse 1 says, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. 
Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say because he was terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the, from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself there, has risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Let's pray. Father, I ask that um, in these next few moments that we have together that, Jesus, we would see you. Um, I do ask that you would stir our hearts, you would wake our sleepy eyes and ears and hearts, stir us from our slumber, that we might be the church that reflects the, the rescuer, the one who has come to give life. May we be a place that reflects that one. It's in your name we pray. Amen. There has been a lot of conversation about Jesus' first uh, statement in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Let's, I just want to read it one more time so we're clear on it. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to the crowd, some standing right here now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Now, there is a debate in scholarship that is about what is Jesus actually talking about here? Is it the destruction of Jerusalem that would eventually come? Is it the resurrection of Jesus? But could Mark have actually answered all the debate simply in the next verse? In the very next verse, he actually says, he gives us what happens. He takes James, Peter, and John to a mountain, and they see something they've never seen before. So maybe Mark, for us, answers this question. So maybe it's not as big of an argument or a debate as some people are making it. Maybe it is. Mark is saying, James, Peter, and John literally got to see the kingdom come in power right there. So Jesus isn't predicting, hey, you guys are going to live another six days. That's not what he's doing. He's not saying, you guys aren't going to die in, you know, in six days. He's saying, as we're standing right here, as real as you and I are, as real as I can touch you, as real as you can see me, you're going to see the kingdom of God come in a powerful way. And they do. And Jesus is transformed right before their eyes. Mark, Mark's gospel records for us that, that clothes were so bright, way brighter than any earthly bleach could cause those clothes to become. Matthew's gospel actually says that Jesus is face was shining like the sun. And in this moment, the phrase is transfigured. And I love that it's transfigured because it means that Jesus didn't transform from like a, you know, a robot to a car. It didn't mean he changed from one thing to another. But that phrase transfigured really means, at, at its depth, it means that what's on the inside shows up on the outside. It wasn't like Jesus was putting on a covering or a mask. What was happening is that the disciples were actually seeing who Jesus already was. 
You remember we talked about a couple weeks ago when the blind man, and Sue, Sue referenced him this morning, where, where Jesus touched his eyes and, and he could see kind of, and then he touched his eyes again, and then, then he could fully see. But really what's happening is Jesus is showing the disciples, this is kind of how it is with me. Like you're going to get some things and there's other things that you're going to get later. And what they got to see was Jesus not, as, not, not being totally transformed into something new, but all what he has been all along. The Christ follower does not believe that Jesus was created by God or that he became God later in the, in the disciples' words, but that Jesus has always been God. He's been with the Father he has no beginning. He has no end. He was present in creation. He'll be present at his return. I mean, Jesus has always been. This is why Jesus is not the same. We're not looking at a Jesus who just says good things. We're looking at a Jesus who is the glory of God. The curtain was pulled back, and they got to see who Jesus was and has been all this time. Now Moses and Elijah, they show up and chat with Jesus in this moment, and it's pretty significant. Mark, we believe, is pointing to the connection of the Old Testament and Jesus being the bridge to the new, and how they actually are connected. You can't throw one out because one points to the other. The old covenant, the old promise that God made with the people of Israel points to the new covenant that Jesus himself would come and the word is fulfill. Moses represents the law of God. Like we've all seen the Moses movies where he comes down with the two tablets and I'm Moses and he's got these, these stone tablets. The law of God is presented and God sits with Moses, writes this thing with him and says, this is how my people will live. This is the law. Elijah represents this, the prophet of God, the one who speaks the word of God. So you have the law of God represented in the Old Testament. You have the word of God represented standing on the mountain with Jesus. In the Old Testament, the way the people of God were separated from the rest of the nations was they were a people who observed the law and they obeyed his word. And because those people could not do that perfectly, they also observed sacrifice. So there was this process that allowed the people of God who were waiting for the Messiah to have relationship with God. And it was through obeying the law, it was through hearing the word and obeying the word. And when they didn't, because they heard the word, they practice the sacrifice. Jesus lets us understand a little bit more in the Gospel of Matthew why he comes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus saying, Do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Jesus is not throwing out the Old Testament. You see, Jesus is fulfilling all the things written in the Old Testament. There is a difference. Jesus is going to fulfill for us what we could not do. Where people could not keep God's law, where people could not love his word or obey his word perfectly, and they had to practice sacrifice. This was an over and over and over repetitious, we have to do these things, we have to celebrate, we have to observe, we have to practice. 
where there was a restoring of relationship that would continue because of that, those actions, Jesus is actually going to fulfill all these things. So people are going, wait, 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 wait. So you're going to be the one who lives out the law perfectly? Can you not see Moses and Elijah standing on the mountain with Jesus? Like Moses looking at Jesus going, man, like you're going to live the law perfectly? Man, I wish I had two million of you walking around in the desert with me. Walking with sinners is miserable. Can you not see Moses looking at Jesus going, you're going to do this thing perfectly? Like you're going to live this out? Can you not see Elijah standing and looking at Jesus going, man, like I'm, I would never have to call you to return I would never have to call you to confess or repent because you take the word of God as, as life itself. Like, you're the guy. Like Moses and Elijah standing, guys who suffered for the sake of what was to come. They lived and died and did not see this. But they're looking at the fulfillment. They're going, you're the dude. Like, you're him. You're going you're gonna to make all of this possible. Like, this is a moment in history that, for some reason, we're given a little window into. You know, Luke's record of this mountaintop experience actually gives us a little more detail than Mark does. And Moses and Elijah are actually speaking to Jesus. And you're like, what are they talking about? Luke's gospel gives us a little detail. And they actually are talking to Jesus about his exodus from the world. Like, it's crazy, and especially when you think about how Elijah left the world and how Moses, Moses led another people out. They, there was an exodus involved with him. Like, Elijah, he didn't die. He was taken up in a fiery chariot, you know? Like, Moses got to see people walk out of Egypt from slavery. Like, he got to do these powerful things and see the, the seas part and God provide and all this powerful picture of, of a journey that Moses gets to lead the people on. And they're looking at Jesus going, so you're going to die. Like, it's kind of a raw deal, man. Like, your exodus from this world is a road of suffering and death. Huh. All roads point to the cross. And as if this wasn't enough, God's presence shows up in a cloud. God speaks of Jesus, and this time it is a different charge the first time he speaks over Jesus in Mark chapter 1, he actually says, you are my dearly loved son. Like God is affirming Jesus publicly. The second time God's presence shows up in Mark 9, verse 7, he says this. He says, this is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. God was not speaking to affirm Jesus and who Jesus is anymore. He's explaining to the disciples all the thoughts that you have about what the Messiah should be found in him. Listen to him. All the thoughts that you have of victory and, and rescue and all the ideas that are coming to mind. Jesus is the one. Listen to what he says. 
These are almost definitely references to an Old Testament promise about the Messiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses actually speaks these words out loud. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So can you see why this is such an amazing moment for Moses on the mountain with Jesus? Moses didn't know who he was talking about, and now he does. Moses, probably like most Israelites, thought that this Messiah would be a representative who did things for God. They had no clue that God himself was going to show up. And so for Moses to look over at Jesus and go, man, you're so much better than me. <laughs> like what you're going to do is so much better. That's why in the scriptures, Jesus is known as the better Moses. Jesus isn't, and, and I want to make very clear that as God is revealing that Jesus is who he says he is and that we're to listen to him, God the Father is coming and offering backup to all that Jesus' hard words of suffering and rejection really point to. Jesus is not just reflecting God's glory. Not like someone like Moses or Elijah. You know, the moon and the sun relationship. Obviously, the moon has no light of its own. All it does is reflect, correct? If the sun goes out, moon goes out. There's no light coming from the moon. Reflects. This is not what it's like for Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. It comes from him. There's a difference between reflecting it and it being from you. Hebrews chapter 1 describes Jesus this way. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. Okay, so Jesus wasn't created. He was there with the father in the beginning. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. The scriptures say that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. So if we want to know what God is like, we have to look at Jesus. And if you come up with definitions for what God is like, and you're not looking at Jesus, you are not getting a full picture. That's what the scriptures proclaim. This is what the scriptures tell us. And centuries before this event occurs, God's presence shows up on another mountain God's voice speaks. The people freak out. Moses goes up and says, hey, I want to see you, God. God's like, no, you can't see my face because if you see my face, you will die. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take my hand. I'm going to put you in the crevice of this rock. I'm going to walk by you and you can see my backside. <laughs> That's what you can see. That's what I'm going to let you see. And apparently this experience was so transformative in Moses' life just by getting a hint at who God was that his face shone so brightly that people were like, dude, you got to cover that up. I can't look at you, man. Like, you got to put that thing over your face so we can't see you. I, you're, you're burning my eyes, man. You got to cover it up. Moses couldn't even get close. But what he did experience lit his face up in a way that it caused people to be like, this is too much. 
You know, but there's another twist to this encounter on the mountain that Jesus has with Moses, Elijah, James, Peter, and John. And that is James, Peter, and John don't die. <laughs> they don't die. And this is a crazy moment. And I mean, it's part of the reason I believe that Matthew's gospel says that they fell down in fear because of what they were actually seeing, which may have been part of the reason Peter suggests, let's build some tents, guys. <laughs> it might have been part of the reason Peter yells out, hey, let's build the tent, because this glory, it's too much. Peter, James, we don't want to get sunburned, do we? Sunburned? S-O-N? Anybody? High five? No? No, I'm alone on this? Okay. I'm freaking out. I don't really know what to say anyways, so uh, I'm just going to lay down and I'll pretend I'm dead. So that's what I'm going to do. Could have been part of the reason Peter just blurts out, we got to cover this up. <laughs> Maybe he wanted to just camp there. Right? Like, Maybe Peter was like, hey, this is the power I'm talking about. This is the glory I'm thinking about. Why don't we just stay on the mountain? Let's just camp up here. We stay where the power is. You ain't got to go to the cross. If you ain't got to go to the cross and suffer, I ain't got to go to the cross and suffer. Let's just stay up here where it's nice. This tent is nice and spacious. It's plenty of room. We don't ultimately know why Peter yelled out what he did. <laughs> I mean, we know that he was freaked out, and it's why he did it. So there's not really a ton of reason to, uh, uh, to debate it. But in the Old Testament, God tells Moses, look, nobody gets to see my glory. Nobody gets to see me and live. And this was not a threat. I need you to understand that by God saying, no one can see me and live, this is not a threat. It is just a reality. When Jesus and when, when, when God the Father says, look, my holiness, my majesty, my glory, the gap between that and your divinity, your, your humanity, your sinfulness, it's just so great that they can't mesh together. Like it's not God being this threatening God, it's him saying, and, it, and we should take it as warning, obviously. But when he's just stating the truth that we cannot interact in our current states the way we are, human beings, individuals as we are, because we love ourselves so much, we say, God, you got to change. Then God, why don't you just change it? That's, that's a sinful, prideful heart says. The reality is God has said, I have made a way so we can interact. That's the whole Old Testament, the whole tabernacle being built so that God's presence can interact with humanity. The thought of setting up a tent, the tabernacle, it makes sense when you think through the Old Testament way of thinking. God wants to be close, but it has to be done in his ways. The reason he gave us all the law, the reason he gave us all the specific measurements was so that he could be with us. And the people who longed to be with God looked at that and said, all right, now you've given what we need. And the story continues that way. Many world religions understand that there is a gap between divine and the human. So they have temples, shrines, tabernacles, priests, sacrifices, rituals. All of these things can be performed so that you don't come too close 
to divinity. You kind of keep your gap. There's this go-between. Somehow, there's this, this understanding that divinity is divinity and humanity is humanity, and so we've got these go-betweens that help us in that connection. And when this cloud disappears, many scholars suggest that because Moses and Elijah disappeared, it was Mark's way of saying, it's just Jesus. Jesus is the gap filler. He is the go-between. He is how we, as sinful people, made right because of Christ, now have access to a holy God. It's why we're not sacrificing today. It's, not why, it's why we're not saying, well, we've got to obey the law perfectly because we can't. It's, not, it's the reason we don't have to celebrate all the festivals because all the festivals point to Jesus. Jesus himself fulfills those things. That's why we say, put your trust in Christ because he's the one who has fulfilled all the things that God required in the Old Testament. God himself did these things for us on our behalf. Peter, James, and John got to experience worship. And I'm not talking about just singing songs or showing up at church, but they sensed what they were made for. They caught a glimpse of the future. They caught a glimpse of what it means to be fully alive. They saw it and it marked them as they went back down the mountain. And many of them suffered and died for this. Luke's gospel also records for us when Jesus is speaking to the disciples after the resurrection and he's messing with the disciples because they still don't recognize him. And he goes through all the scriptures for them and says, I want you to see this is how they point to me. And the disciples' response after they see and figure out that was Jesus is when he spoke, didn't our hearts burn? Like when his word came close, when he was teaching us, when he was talking to us, didn't our hearts burn? This is why I believe Peter speaks of this encounter in his letter in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is one of the only experiences Peter actually references back to in his letters. And it's this moment on the mountain. Second Peter chapter 1, he says this. For we, we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence. Listen to this. Because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your We long for those experiences. And Peter said that experience gave him more trust in what was recorded for us. This is how important this text 
really is. I know some of you equate this to a Harry Potter novel or a C.S. Lewis fairy tale. But if the scripture really is where we are able to encounter Jesus as he is, which is what our hearts need, we do not need a watered down Jesus. We do not need a, a, a Google thought Jesus. We need the real Jesus. And Peter said that that moment on that mountain caused him to go, I love this word more. Jesus helps reveal to us who Jesus is, just as he revealed to the blind man sight and to the disciples that this is what life is going to be like. For those of you that have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia series in, in the Prince Caspian book, towards the end, there's a, um, an encounter where Aslan, the lion, the big lion, who's this Christ figure in the story, Lucy, one of, the, one of the children in the book, she says to Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan responds to her. He says, that's because you are older, little one. And Lucy's response to Aslan is like, not because you're older? Aslan's like, no, I'm not. I'm not older. I have no beginning, no end, so there's no age involved. And Aslan says to Lucy, he says, I am not older. But every year that you grow, you will find me bigger. I believe this is the way Christ continues to reveal more and more of who he is to us. Just as the disciples came down from the mountain, in many of those moments when the disciples had to come back down the mountain, they went into immediate moments of ministry and what would appear to be chaos. But they were marked by those moments. And even as Jesus went on the hill of Calvary, the hill of Golgotha, the skull, that hill, which was a mountaintop experience in many ways, would lead to the darkest valley the disciples had ever lived. Worry, anxiety, fear, doubt, but little did they know that that mountain, Mount Calvary, that mountain would be the fuel for every other valley experience they would walk in. As we close this morning, when the smoke clears, it is just Jesus. Guys, we want the spectacular. We want the clouds. We want the experience. But what if being a disciple or a follower of Christ is built simply on saying, Jesus, you met me here. I will keep moving from here. What if that's what discipleship is? What if discipleship is not on the mountain, feeling all the feelings, but what if discipleship is long obedience in the same direction and letting God meet us where he meets us and when we are moving forward, we remember where he met us and we go, that God, the same God who was with me on the mountain is the same God who's with me in the valley. And when we walk in the valleys with a God who we know is powerful, we don't walk with our heads down, we walk with our heads up because we're like, God, you, you're carrying me. The disciples were marked by this mountaintop experience, but they did not live there. 
Jesus revealed that there is no glory without suffering, but that our suffering will fail to compare to the glory that is transforming us day to day. One of the most amazing promises of scripture involves that word transformation that is used in the same way in Mark's gospel. Two other times it's used, and it's used by Paul, and it's that word transformed again. An inside-out change. Not an outside-in change. An inside-out transformation. In other words, we could say it this way, the outside begins to match the inside. That's what happened on that mountain, and that is what is promised for you and for me as followers of Jesus. Not simply putting something on, but something within making its way out. Romans 12, don't copy the behaviors and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. 2 Corinthians 3.18, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. It is in Christ Himself that we see how humanity was really made to live. That's why we think he's so beautiful. That's why we think Jesus is so good, because we look at him and we long to live like that. It's because that's how we were made to live. I need you to understand that it's how we were meant to interact with each other. But you know what happened? Sin. And so we need someone on our behalf to be the one who does the work in us. I'm not strong enough to live as Jesus lived. You are not strong enough to live as Jesus lived. You need Jesus to live as Jesus lived. And I know that goes so against this day and age where it says you have it in you to make the change you need to make. Friends, it's impossible. That's what this story speaks of. And I pray that this morning that what we've lost in the fall, we begin to slowly but surely experience in Christ. You and I were made in the image of God, but we are being transformed into the image of Christ. This morning as we take communion, one of the beautiful things about communion is we declare Jesus' death until the day he returns. So when I take this bread and I take it and dip it in the juice, the bread representing the body of Christ, the juice representing the blood of Christ, as I take this meal, I'm actually taking in <laughs> this one who was transformed before Peter, James, and John from the inside out. It's the same transformation that is promised for his people. What God has started in us, he will be faithful to complete on that day. And it's a promise and a reminder that our trust is not in our ability to change ourselves, but our trust is in the one who brings about the transformation. So as you go to the corners of the room, would you remember, would you remember how he has met you? Would you remember the times when, when you said, Jesus, I will go for you? 
Will you remember those times when you sat with him in his word and it was alive and active and shaping you? Would you sit with him in those times when you were marked by an experience and go, I remember those things. And God, I'm in a valley right now. Help me to remember your faithfulness. And communion is just a way of doing that. It's remembering he is faithful. Father, we love you. And I ask that as the disciples had to come down off of that mountain, seeing the glory that you have always walked with, and it marked them and caused them to walk differently in some very low days, would you help us remember Would you help us remember our first love? Like, would you help us remember when we simply believed, Jesus, you lived, you died, you rose again, and you will return. Would you help us remember our very first love? Because it's that love that sustains us every day forward. It's in your name we pray.